Welcome, everybody. We are delighted to have Professor Megan Robb with us this evening and are only sorry that we are unable to host her and indeed all the audience tonight in person at Rare Book School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Next year, Deo Volente. Tonight we have an event that is even more important than the start of the Major League Baseball season, which also takes place this evening, the final RBS Summer Lecture of 2020. The full slate of RBS online programming continues through next week, however. Our speaker, Megan Robb, is the Julian Martin Franklin Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Before assuming this post, she was a departmental lecturer of Urdu and Hindi at the University of Oxford. And before that, she was a Mellon Junior Research Fellow at the Oxford Center for Islamic Studies. Her DPhil, a PhD driving on the wrong side of the road, is in Modern South Asian Studies and was awarded by the prestigious Oriental Institute of Oxford University. Professor Robb's book, Printing the Urdu Public, Muslims, Newspapers, and Urban Life, 1900 to 1947, published by Oxford University Press, will be out in October of this year. Warmest congratulations to you, Megan. Among her many honors, in 2021, she will hold the Fulbright Research Chair in South Asian Islam at the University of Calgary. We are excited to hear her lecture this evening, printing the Urdu public, newspapers, Muslims, and urban life in colonial India. Professor Rob. Thank you, Michael, for that kind introduction. And thank you also to Barbara for giving me the opportunity to talk about my work today along with Michael. And I want to express my gratitude to Robin and Laura as well for answering my many questions about delivering a lecture live online. I'm so pleased to be able to talk about my work with you today. This talk focuses on one chapter of my book entitled Printing the Urdu Public, Muslims, Newspapers, and Urban Life in Colonial India, a book which is coming out with Oxford University Press this October. My book is overall interested in two tasks. First, why is it important to consider alignments with space and time when defining public spheres? This means acknowledging that what constitutes a public can vary dramatically according to the alignments that public makes with a specific geographic place or places. I became particularly interested in the environment of the Qasbah or Islamicate small town in South Asia and particularly its links to a Persianate past. My book also argues that we should take seriously material lithographed newspapers as sources that tell us something about everyday Muslim life and even piety. The book's argument tackles these two tasks, localizing the public and taking material lithographed newspapers seriously by focusing on the case study of a previously understudied newspaper called Medina, 
which was published in a town called Vijnor in the then United Provinces from the year 1912, under the guidance of a man called Molana Majid Hassan. Considering the materiality of the newspaper's production is important because it allows us to conceive of a space where print capitalism is coherent with, even in acting in service of, religious identity alongside national identity. The subject of this talk is the chapter that points out what is added to a conversation about Urdu newspapers when we pay attention to their materiality. In 1912 Bijnor, in British India, this man in the top left, Majid Hassan, sold the jewelry of his wife, Mahatam Rakhani's Fatima, with her permission, in order to raise money to found the newspaper Medina. This newspaper pledged to be, quote, the friend of the mulk, meaning nation, the life of the qom, or the Muslim community, end quote. Medina went on to become one of the most successful newspapers of any language circulating in North India and the Punjab in that era. This paper's ultimate success is not something most observers could have predicted. It was published in a Qasba, an isolated market town with an Islamic hue, and its proprietor, Majid Hassan, was not influential, nor was he rich. Nonetheless, despite its isolated beginnings, the paper Medina went on to become popular across North India and the Punjab, and went on to play an important role in the independence movement. It was so successful, in fact, that Bijnor Qasba, by all accounts a tiny town, became a publishing hub, home to many printing presses. The story of Medina newspaper and Medina press illustrates how a distinctive geographic space and attitude to time shaped an early 20th century public sphere that orbited around the Star of Urdu during the movement for independence, which culminated in the independence of both India and Pakistan in August 1947. It is through attention to details of newspaper production, the use of lithography rather than typeset technologies, the use of Akhbar Navis newsletter models as paragons rather than or in addition to English newspaper models, that we can see how the case of Urdu printing in India may challenge some accepted notions of the role of print capitalism in the relationship between religion and modernity. This is a map of the area of British India where Medina newspaper was published and circulated. You can see in the circle the area that indicates the district of Bijnor. In the district of Bijnor, there is also a qasba called uh, Bijnor itself. So a qasba is a particular type of Islamic small town in India that is characterized by at least a prominent Muslim minority, if not a majority, and that boasts administrative and civil service connections, as well as educational institutions whose provenance dates back to the time of Mughal rule. The newspaper of Medina emerged from the qasba, the town for which the district of Bijnor was named. So initially, Medina newspaper published only 350 copies in 1912. By 1922, the newspaper was publishing 12,500 copies on a biweekly basis, making it the most widely distributed newspaper in India of any language in that year. After that point, the circulation numbers leveled out, but remained several thousand. Majid Hassan became linked to the Indian National Congress political leadership of Bijnor, leveraging his successful printing endeavors into a place on the municipal board in the 1920s. By the late 1930s, his editors were being photographed with 
uh, National Indian National Congress leadership. The story of a local paper that became a national paper and one that used an influential form of printing, lithography, shows how an attention to the style and mode of printing may challenge previously cherished dichotomies between print capitalism and religious publics by showing the ways that a European printing form took on a life of its own in South Asia. Of course, as scholarship has indicated, the association between Urdu and Islam is in historical terms a recent phenomenon and not one that in any way suggests a natural or inherent alliance between that language and religion. Instead, my work looks at the way that some Urdu newspapers confirmed and assisted in constructing this association between the Urdu language and Muslim identity in the first half of the 20th century. Okay. Here is a striking image from the newspaper, written in a banner-shaped cartouche above an ornate image of the city of Medina is the phrase, Musulmano ka wahid qomi tamadani adabi akhlaqi tarikhi siyasati haftavar akhbar. And this means Muslims unique, community-oriented, social, literary, moral, historical, political, weekly news. As physical artifacts and imagined links binding the Muslim community, 20th century newspapers and their distribution networks were an extension of correspondence networks that had flourished long before the arrival of the British. These networks had traditionally approached matters without distinguishing between secular and religious content. The British colonial government, however, insisted on this distinction between secular and religious content. And when papers like Medina failed to stay in the lane of exclusively religious content, they earned the suspicion and ire of the colonial surveillance agencies. For example, in 1912, looking at a list of publications under surveillance in UP that year, several papers were deemed by British colonial censors to have violated this rule. And as a result were labeled, quote, bigoted Mohammedan organs, end quote. Majid Hassan was linked through pre-existing kinship networks with proprietors and editors of other prominent small town newspapers across North India. His newspaper reprinted articles from other small town as well as some big city newspapers, commenting on their approaches and engaging with them. His staff were, like him, products of Ghazba culture, drawn from surrounding small towns, linked together by generations of kinship and professional ties. The editors lived with Majid Hassan while they worked on the paper in the family compound, which you'll see a photo of in a moment. In this way, Medina built on existing relational networks. While newspapers could not comment on censorship carried out on their own papers, they could comment on the censorship of others, and they did so often. For instance, when the newspaper Zamindar, published from Lahore, lost its appeal against British censorship, Medina published an energetic defense built on an argument that sewed the newspaper into the identity of the Muslim community, saying that Zamindar, quote, is the property of the Mohammedan, meaning Muslim, community and that any loss to the zamindar means loss to the community, end quote. This sort of activism presented the newspaper conversation as an essential space for Muslims, public in the sense of providing a forum for open airing of views outside the limitations of private correspondence networks on which they were based. Indeed, Medina portrayed not only zamindar, a specific newspaper, but the Urdu press conversation as a whole, 
as a representative voice of the Qom, or a word that could mean nation or community. As Margaret Pernau and more recently Michael Fisher have demonstrated, there are significant continuities between Persian language newsletters that circulated during the Mughal period, known as Akhbarat, and what became known as newspapers in the late 19th and 20th centuries, uh, and early 20th century, late 19th and early 20th century. The method of knowledge exchange known as Akhbarat had been in use from the height of the Mughal Empire until as late as the 19th century, employing clerks who gathered information about the central court for dissemination in satellite courts. In the 16th century, Emperor Akbar established the practice of clerks recording court diaries for the reference of government servants and courtiers, as well as to reflect the emperor's symbolic significance as the embodied spirit of the empire. In this arrangement, news writers called Akhbar Navis, writers of news, literally, um, they collected records at the central court and were employed either by an individual or a group of subscribers to transmit the information about the central court to Mughal outposts. And in this way, regional leaders and interested parties could keep tabs on developments at the center without jeopardizing their hold over to state matters at home. Kinship groups associated with the role of Akhbar Navis correlate with trends in the Ashraf or the nobility of the period more generally. Many of these news writers would have been Muslims of Central Asian heritage, and many actually, and of course, were not Muslim. So for instance, the 18th century Maratha Powers collection of Akhbarat reveals that most Akhbar Navis under Peshwa rule hailed from Islamized Hindu castes, Kayast and Khatris, known for their membership in the scribal elite. The East India Company adopted the Mughal network of Akhbar Navis, and the British eventually institutionalized and bureaucratized that system to suit their purposes. By the early 20th century, the British had come to depend on newspapers to do the type of information gathering legwork that Akhbar Navis had done previously. Newspapers originating in local communities, including Medina, self-consciously claimed the tradition of the Akhbar Navis through their titles, their section headings, and their use of Persian. Until Margaret Purnell's work on the subject, the origins of Urdu newspapers in the Akhbar Navis tradition were obscured, permitting the assumption that only European printing press and newspaper models guided the development of Urdu newspapers. While there is some work looking at how discursively newspapers reflected in Persianate newsletter models, we have not looked yet closely at how the aesthetics of newspapers design could reflect these legacies as well. In fact, in their most elaborate forms, the newspapers could even take on the appearance of mass-produced manuscripts. To illustrate this point, here we see the first issue of Medina Akhbar compared to a, some illuminated frontispiece of a dewan or a poetry, a particular type of poetry collection. We see echoes of manuscript illustrations here. The characteristic border on both sides trailing off before it reaches the top of the page. The repertoire of decoration includes cartouches designed to create depth and dimensionality on the page, and we have fenials appearing as adornments. It was not until the arrival of lithography that there was a widespread adoption of print by Urdu and Persian writers in South Asia, and I'm happy to talk about the reasons why in the Q&A if you're interested. In 1796, as many if not most of you well know, the Bavarian playwright Alois Senefelder discovered 
that he could duplicate his scripts by writing them on greasy crayon on slabs, writing on them with greasy crayon on slabs of limestone treated with chemicals, which could then be used to print with rolled on ink. He developed a lithographic hand press that compared to the letterpress method was relatively portable and inexpensive. It is the method of lithograph that allowed for the preservation of legibility in Urdu script. It allowed the preservation of its beauty, of nastalik, a form of calligraphy popular uh, among Urdu speakers in India and Pakistan. It built on existing strengths in calligraphy training and networks, and it allowed for greater access to local printers. For all of these reasons, lithography, and in particular, the hand press took off among Urdu speakers, uh, or in Urdu, Urdu writers, rather. Although the print technology of lithography originated from outside of the subcontinent, and this is often emphasized, when lithographic technology began to be used widely in South Asia, it was not adopted wholesale from Europe in method or tone, but instead was creatively adapted as it was adopted by South Asian printers and publishers. I want to take you through the life cycle of the creation of a lithographic newspaper in the headquarters of Medina for the rest of the presentation. And as I take you through each of these stages, I will talk about how the particular characteristics of each stage had implications for the production of unique features of an Indian public in general and a Muslim public sphere centered around the Star of Urdu in particular. The name of the newspaper Medina means simply city in Arabic. And this is an ironic choice, considering that the paper was based in a qasba with a population of only 20,000. The choice may reflect something of the paper's ambitions to provide a link with or even conjure that holy city of Islam through its visual and material presence. On the other hand, an orthodox vision or dream experience was often associated with a stay in a holy city. By choosing the name Medina, Molana Lajid Hassan was implying that the reading of the newspaper took readers on a spiritual journey without the necessity of terrestrial travel. Medina's first cover here displayed a dramatic image of the city of Medina and the boat that brought George V to India for his darbar in 1911. So here you can see the city of Medina and here you have the ship that brought George V to India, which happened to have also been called uh, Medina. The inclusion of the boat may also have been an oblique reference to the newspaper support of the Hajj, one of the key rituals of Islam and its campaign for government-sponsored transport to Mecca for the ritual. This cover is mixing elements of Urdu, Persian, and Arabic. The city of Medina, which appears written here, would have appeared as Al-Medina if written in Arabic, and here it is simply the word Medina. At the same time, the title includes diacritic marks usually reserved for Quranic Arabic in particular. While the text included several words in Arabic as well, so we have the inclusion of Arabic in, um, in, in the Arabic appears in a Nusk calligraphic script rather than Nastalik, even though Arabic is appearing, the grammar of the sentences remains for the most part Urdu or Persian. This manner of mixing the aesthetics of calligraphy associated with different scripts rendered Arabic words understandable to South Asian Muslim readers, even if they did not read that language, while linking Nastalik calligraphy in its form to Quranic practices implicitly and Persian heritage implicitly. This mixing of modes infused the Urdu and even these newspaper conversations with a sacred import. 
So these are two lithographic stones that were used in the production of uh, Medina Press's publications. And according to Munir Akhtar, the great nephew of Molana Majid Hassan, two types of printing press were used by Medina, a Ratcliffe, which was a steam press, and an unknown brand that was the hand press, and both had been shipped from England. Stones were used rather than offset lithography, and most of the lithographic stones in circulation um, internationally in the late 19th and early 20th century were mined out of southern Germany, and much of the lithographic ink or touche was sourced from France. And while it's not possible to tell from a lithographic image itself, whether it was created using limestone or marble or onyx stone, because in India, marble or onyx were used as replacements for limestone um, in lithography on occasion. If we judge from the two stones left in storage at the Medina Press headquarters, uh, now still the family home of Munir Akhtar, it's clear that the stones used for the printing of Medina were limestone. These blocks were large indicating the scale of the project and fine-grained, which suggests they were chosen specifically to produce clear renderings of text rather than image. It is also clear from these last two remnants of over two dozen lithographic stones that were in regular rotation at Medina that each remained in use long enough for the stone to become remarkably thin from wear. We do know that there were lithographic stones being imported into India at this time, but we also know that there was at least one domestic mine for limestone needed for lithography that opened in Karnul in Andhra Pradesh. Um, and it had emerged, the mine had emerged within a decade of the technology of lithography's arrival in India. So we don't know the specific source of the limestone that was used in, um, in Medina's printing. Confirming the source of this stone would lend additional weight to the argument that lithographic printing technology was thoroughly indigenized in India but it is also possible that this, this, these particular stones were sourced from Europe. One quick note that Medina never seems to have employed offset lithography based on existing evidence. The Ratcliffe produced an electric version of a single press lithography machine and oral histories that I've conducted among the family of the printers and material evidence point to a sole dependence on stone lithography even as late as the 1960s. Like many publishers working with Urdu, this seemingly old-fashioned form of printing outlasted the utility it was seen to offer in North America and Europe because of the distinctive requirements of Urdu calligraphic legibility and ideal aesthetics. The process of graining a stone to smooth the surface to prepare it for printing was long and laborious. Two lithographic stones could be placed one on top of the other with the bottom remaining stationary and the top spun to speed up the grinding process. <clears throat> this work would have been performed by two <clears throat> or more manual laborers, excuse me. Stones could weigh anywhere from several dozen pounds up to 100 pounds. I did not try to lift these. These were definitely in the <clears throat> 100 pounds or more category. In Medina Press, the process was made efficient by the plentiful availability of skilled and unskilled laborers in a typical qasba. Newspapers and printing presses could become a local business specialty for small towns and neighborhoods, employing dozens of people. Eyewitness accounts confirm that Medina at one point printed uh, using a collection of over two dozen large stones that were in rotation for a number of projects at any given time. So let's take a little bit about ink before we start making an actual image. Materials such as ink and ink transfer strategies were also developed locally in South Asia, rather than simply straightforwardly imported. 
In Nizami Press in Badayun, print technicians learned how to make their own pigments and then passed that knowledge on to their students. And we can presume that the same thing was happening in Bijnor. Printers created their own inks through experimentation, then did refer to those inks with English names. So if you think again about this handbook um, that I mentioned a little bit earlier by Muhammad Ahid and Badayuni, he had solicited help in developing an Urdu lexicon for lithography at the translation department of Osmani University in Hyderabad. And ultimately he was unsuccessful. So he continues to refer to the English names and even to use the um, English script using lithography as well, as you can see here on a page where he's describing colors and how they're made. This manual describes the popularity of a Kanpuri tush, referred to as kapi kirushnai, which means printing ink. And it was created according to a recipe of ingredients readily available in South Asia. Medina primarily used the egg white emulsion transfer method to transfer the, the text of a newspaper onto the stone. So typically, I mean, in stone lithography, the image on the stone needs to be a mirror image. There are two ways one can go out doing this very time intensive way of mirror writing onto the stone or the far more efficient way using an egg white emulsion um, layer onto a piece of paper which is then written upon and then heat is used to transfer that image into a mirror image on top of the stone. And from that point on, any errors were corrected by acid treatment and painting directly on the stone using mirror writing. And this approach allowed the publisher to depend and continue to depend on calligraphers who would have still been plentiful in that period and circumvent the need for the skill intensive task of mirror writing. Um, and, and except for very small corrections that were made at the very last stages. Majid Hassan himself, the proprietor, was skilled enough in mirror writing to personally execute corrections, according to his great nephew, who also trained in publishing and saw um, his great uncle at work in his early life. So this is me trying, uh, this is me re uh, reproducing the title of Medina itself. Um, and in order to fix or etch the image using stone lithography, the artisan would paint a combination of gum arabic and acid over the image. A combination of nitric and acetic acid was used in order to capture the characteristic nuances in lithographic art prints. But in, in text, the nuances weren't so important as clarity, which is why I mentioned that the stones were very fine grained. This is something that hinted at the fact that they were really looking for clarity over the nuance you might look for in a contemporary fine art um, lithographic studio stone. A strong acid was not desirable in the etching process for newspapers since uh, the acid would cause the transmission of minute irregularities in the ink um, and it would show an unevenness, which is desirable in fine art, but not desirable in a very quick production process like newspaper printing. While in Europe, acetic acid was derived from the active ingredient in vinegar. In South Asia, local alternatives were employed instead, specifically the dried extract of sour mangoes or lemons. As soon as the gum arabic acid combination was painted onto the grease or uh, the touche crayon ink that uh, treated areas, the acid in the solution inspired a chain reaction that acted on the grease in the touche. This chemical reaction drove the grease into the stone and created grease reservoirs a few millimeters, a few millimeters deep into the stone, changing the chemical composition of the limestone and preparing it for printing. On the positive areas of the matrix, meaning where there was a text or image, 
the gum arabic created grease reservoirs in the stone that were ready to repel water and soak in ink. And on the other hand, the change in the chemical composition of the negative or untreated areas of the stone, so areas where we don't have text, they, it, it, it changed the chemical composition to make those negative areas soak in water and repel ink. So this process called etching was time intensive and required expertise, but once it was complete, then the stone and image were buffed with a soft cloth. You can see that's what I'm trying to do here and prepared for printing. You can also see me here in the blue gloves using a petroleum based substance, which was used to strip the stone off the ink while still preserving the greasy reservoirs um, to prepare for the inking and printing process. Just a quick note, we know from Ahidan's manual that in South Asia, paraffin oil was usually employed for this purpose, but sometimes even petrol or kerosene was used. So at this point, the image is ready for inking and printing. We have a bead of ink spread onto a palette, often an old decommissioned stone, as is the case here in a lithographic printing studio in Philadelphia and rolled up onto an ink roller or siaka belan, if we're using the terminology from Ahudin's manual. Today, the roller is usually wrapped in suede, which picks up the ink nicely. Ahudin also makes reference to a wooden or stone pin covered in skin, since his directions for preparation of the ink roller to use involves treating it with ink and repeatedly rolling it in the stone to soften its pores. Once the roller was evenly covered with ink, the process of inking began. This involved either one or two people carrying out two tasks in rapid succession. First, the wiping uh, onto the stone of a thin layer of water, so the negative areas of the stone soak in the water and the greasy areas of the stone repel the water. The second step was rolling on the ink, which, um, which the negative areas that were already then saturated with water would repel. The positive greasy areas would soak up the ink instead creating a dark image eventually dark enough for printing multiple copies. And multiple applications of water and ink were required before the greasy reservoirs had soaked up enough ink to allow for the printing of a copy of the text onto paper. So I, I'm, I'm being a little coy. There is, there is me pulling a print in the next slide, I promise. Uh, different strategies were employed for inking in black only, or if inking in multiple colors was required, uh, registration marks were particularly important. Medina was typical in employing at least red and green on a regular basis in addition to black by the 1930s. And printing in multiple colors required the same sheet of paper to be run through the hand press or the electric press multiple times. And for this purpose, reconciliation lines or Milan Kinishan, to use the Urdu terms, were written on the printed image to help the printers keep track of the correct placement of the paper on the press. And you can see me here uh, placing a piece of paper according to the reconciliation lines. Um, we can see that multiple people with specialized knowledge of printing were required to oversee the production of multiple newspaper and book runs at a place like Medina, which had multiple publications. So then the fun part, once the inking is finished, then the print run can begin. So I believe on the next slide, yes, here I am pulling prints. So we have this fully inked image right here, all ready to go after several runs of water and ink. Here I am pulling, um, here I am pushing it through the press and then I'm pulling um, the print just here. And this says Medina, the title of the newspaper. 
So following the printing, drying, and stacking, continuing on our journey through Medina Press, the sheets of paper were taken into separate rooms of the press to be collated, folded and sealed into packages for shipping. When copies of Medina were ready for distribution, a piece of paper was printed via the lithographic stone press with a gridded list of names of subscribers and their addresses. So I found one that survives for another publication of Medina's, which was called Juncha. It means rosebud, and it was a children's newspaper. It was very sweet. Um, and so here we can see the subscription list is written in several different scripts and languages. Um, and we, if we look closer at this, we're getting a sense that there's a very broad spread of subscribers of Medina's publications. This also shows the format of subscriber patches prior to cutting and shows that subscribers still were communicating in multiple languages and scripts, even though they were subscribing to an Urdu publication. So let's see what, what, how these subscriber patches work. So this is the, the actual perforating machine that was used by Medina Press that was used on subscription sheets to make, to make it possible for them to rip apart more easily. And so we would have the perforation machine used to cut the subscription tags from each other. This is my attempt to illustrate that. And then we have a subscription label that would be detached. Each newspaper was folded in half for shipping uh, with the, the front cover protected during transport, and then the rectangle with the subscriber's information, that subscription tag, was pasted in a way to hold the newspaper closed. So you can see uh, a representation of that here. And we're going to look at an example <clears throat> of a newspaper after it's been opened and see the residue. The subscriber patch functioned simultaneously as an address and a method of protecting the cover page until it arrived in the hands of the reader. When the newspaper arrived at the home or office of the reader, the subscriber would break the seal by ripping the piece of pasted paper printed with his own name in half. This means not only did the subscription service, sorry, this means not only did the subscription tag serve at least three purposes, it ensured that each issue was sent because it functioned as a kind of checklist for sending off the newspapers to subscribers. It protected the cover image from damage and it ensured that the newspaper reached its intended recipient through the postal service. The name of the subscriber as a result was often left as a residue on archived issues of particular newspapers, like this one in the bottom right, which I found in uh, Raza Rampur library. So we can get a closer look here at the residue of the subscription seal here, and you can see RAMP, this was delivered to Rampur. So in lithographic printing, the process for printing thousands of copies of one page could take several hours of labor and several laborers. And perhaps as soon as the fresh copies of the newspaper were packed for transport, the long process of grinding away the surface of the stone began to make room for the next edition of the paper. As you can see, although this print technology originated from outside of the subcontinent, we cannot talk about a wholesale import of either methods of reproduction or specific values that scholars of European book history may associate with history of print. In particular, the association between print capitalism and secularization is brought into tension by the example of Medina. Benedict Anderson, who described the rise of the nation as the most universally legitimate value in the political life of our time, linked the rise of nationness to three trends that reinforced this separation. 
a decline in the belief that sacred texts have privileged access to or exclusively embodied truth, the decline of belief in a central monarch ruling by divine right, and the development of a sense of shared experience of time among a group of people separated geographically, referred to by him by the phrase imagined community. Print capitalism is one of the conditions of the emergence of these three trends in Anderson's summation. Now Anderson's work ends where this work picks up. So once we have print capitalism functioning as a condition of the rise of an imagined community, my work is interested in how the imagined community connected to print capital can intertwine with and be necessarily connected to religious identity. The example of Medina and some other Urdu newspapers shows that print capitalism did not necessarily correlate with a decline with a decline in the belief that sacred texts exclusively embody truth. In addition, while several historians have noted a shift to Arabic models in the 19th and 20th century, these observations should be qualified with an awareness of the retention of aesthetic models that were derived from a Persianate, uh, a Persianate models in South Asia in the form of a continued emphasis on Akhbar Navis models, nostalgic calligraphic aesthetics, and the carrying forward of Persianate newsletter or Akhbarat models in newspaper publication. So I am going to stop. Oh, this is my final paragraph, then I will stop. In content and in appearance, Medina imbued itself with value to Muslims particularly. Scholarship on the transmission of oral knowledge to print in Islam has identified a dichotomy between the way that manuscripts preserved the written word, requiring a stamp of approval or an ajazit before it could be finalized, and the impersonal way that print was seen as preserving the written word, mass-produced, industrialized, bureaucratized. Medina and the many other Urdu newspapers that used the lithographic press to preserve Urdu calligraphy formed a bridge between the intensely personal manuscript tra tradition and the world of mass print. Neither manuscript nor a soulless copy, Medina invoked the personalized correspondence networks of the past in a mass-produced form. In this way, it married Persianate newspaper models, remembering the discussion of a Khabar Navis at the beginning of this talk, with images referencing an Arab-inflected pan-Islam, to create productive Urdu newspaper public uh, conversations targeting a Muslim readership. Visual and structural analysis of Medina newspaper shows that in a printed newspaper, even when its contents were explicitly secular in content, they could simultaneously be religious in form. This religious quality derived from the newspaper's visual elements, its association with holy spaces, and its invocation of calligraphy. Far from arguing for a clear divide between the sacred and the secular, the case study of Medina argues against the utility of drawing a strict boundary between these two categories in descriptions of literary publics in South Asia. In the early 20th century, the English language category of religion, like that of the public, was increasingly in conversation with the place of Islam and Urdu. That dynamic bore out in visual references to Muslim spaces and literary publics and in Medina itself. Thank you.